Welcome to Temperature Check, a podcast about climate, justice, and the people making a difference. I'm Jess Stahl, editor for Creative Storytelling at FIX. And this season of Temperature Check, we're turning over the reins to climate and justice leaders to talk about mentorship. For each episode, we asked one changemaker to tell us who inspires them, who supports them. And then we brought them together. People already know that climate is impacting them. They just don't understand their power to make a change around it. You never know the amazing mind that you may influence. The satisfaction that you get from seeing someone else grow and see them just go in places that you could have never even expected. Yeah, when we do this together, we can get things done. This conversation is with Erin McGee and Thien Nguyen. Erin is a herpetologist, science communicator, and graduate student in conservation biology at the University of Arizona. She's also one of our 2021 Grist 50 fixers. Erin chose to speak with her friend and mentor, Thien Nguyen. Thien is a science journalist, and the two hit it off at a speed dating-esque event that matched up mentors and mentees. They've been cheering each other on ever since. Today, Erin and Thien talk about the ripple effects of showing up in environmental work, the perils of grad school, and what it takes to make good lizard content. And now, I'll hand it over to them. Hi, my name is Erin McGee, and I am a recent PhD. I am a herpetologist and science communicator. My name is Thien Nguyen, and I'm a science journalist and video producer. You are my mentor and super amazing person and also a really great friend. And I am very happy to know you and to have you with me on, you know, my journey through life. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. I'm so happy we met. It's been amazing to see your journey and see you grow. And I'm so excited to see where your career is going to go. I remember us meeting at one of like the mixers for the mass media fellowship towards the end or something like that. Mm. So then at the the blind dating to figure out who our mentors would be, I already knew in my mind from that previous meeting that it would be you because I'm just like, nobody else is really meshing with me on the stuff that I want to do. I always knew that I was like the odd ball out or whatever, but like this person, she gets it. <laughs> That's so funny. I remember they told me that you like only put down one name and I was like, what a boss move. (laughs) (laughs) Cause like throughout my whole PhD career, it's been me trying to like figure stuff out for myself and it's been so difficult. I wanted a real mentor. So that's why I was just like, well, if I can't have her for my mentor, then I'm just not going to do this. So What would you say our relationship is like? The first thing that pops into my mind is the big sister I never had. I'm the oldest of five. So like I've always had to be the person that puts everybody else before myself. And so with our relationship, it's nice because I get to come to you about, you know, stuff that I might be struggling with and like talk about my goals and stuff like that. And so like you're super supportive of me. Oh my gosh. It's so nice to hear you say Because I'm actually, I'm one of five too. I'm the third though, not the oldest. Yeah. But that's like my oldest sister. She always feels that pressure to take care of us all. 
Right. And then also like, you don't let me just talk out the side of my neck. You definitely like reel me in and just help me like get focused. You hold me accountable. Mm. It's a mentor slash friend relationship where I respect where you are and your expertise while at the same time you respect where I am at in my journey of just finishing my PhD, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And it's a really good relationship that we got going on right now. I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah. And so how would you describe our relationship? It's in line with what you said. So the first time we met, you were, you know, finishing up your PhD. And I have a PhD in organic chemistry. That last year was insane for me because, you know, it's so hard to switch over to science communication from academia. And it's also just really emotional. You're you're finishing up this long journey. You're so tired. You're just exhausted. It's like you could do anything. It's really overwhelming. So it brings me right back to that time of not knowing what to do. And I've had two really great mentors. I'm just stealing from like whatever they did. Because what I really liked about uh, my relationships with them is that they were super supportive, but they also gave really practical advice. Exactly. I think that's what a mentor really does. It's these questions that you can't really ask to a group. It's like, I have this offer. They're offering me this much money. If I ask for this, would it be crazy? Like that kind of actual advice from someone who knows you and someone who knows your strengths. Because I think sometimes advice, it doesn't really fit to the person. If you don't know what their strengths are and what their actual goals are, it might sound like a great opportunity. But if that's not aligned with the actual person, like that advice makes no sense for them. You kind of like remind me of that one job application I was going to put into that. <laughs> you were like, why are you doing this? Whereas everybody else was like, yeah, you should apply. And I'm just like, eh. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think about like what you've told me and does this make sense for where you want to go. Yeah. And I know sometimes too, like sometimes you just want to rant and I need to do that with my mentors. <laughs> every month I'd be like, I'm lost. I'm sure like she'd probably be tired of hearing that from me like every month wanting to do something else. But she kind of just says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she'd like, we'll bring back, well, you know, you did say this. Because <laughs> sometimes, yeah, I like totally feel like I'm just like floating in space aimlessly. You come like, kind of like grabbing me back. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Anytime. I didn't know that science communication was a career. And um, in my third year of grad school, I was feeling like, everything's falling apart. I don't know if I want to stay in research. Like, I need to find something else to do. And I met a science reporter. Her name is Carmen Drawl. And she was covering my work at a conference. She offered to have lunch with me. And at this lunch, she sort of told me what she did. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the way. Because she had a PhD in, or- in organic chemistry, just like me. And she had, you know, come out of that degree and then gotten this job at Chemical and Engineering News, which funny enough, years later, I would have the same job as her. And then by the time I finished my PhD, that's when I had gotten the Open Notebook Fellowship and then uh, a science writing job at Princeton. That's amazing. So what got you into science communication, Erin? I really didn't know what science communication was. I just kind of started doing it because my grad advisor, Michael Bogan, whenever we would go to conferences and stuff, people would be like, oh, Michael's your advisor? 
I know him off of Twitter and I really want to meet him. Can you like introduce us? And then I was like, well, I'm just a first year grad student and I want people to think about me like that because yeah. in five years I'm going to need a job. So let me just go ahead and start posting about all the stuff that I do. I made like a Twitter and I started talking about my research. I started talking about what it was like to be a black woman in academia and like herpetology specifically. Mm. Herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. For me specifically, I study lizards. After about two years, I had finished my master's and I was like, you know what? I really want to host a natural history TV show. That's something I've always thought was super cool and I talked to my undergraduate advisor about it and like once he gave me the okay like he was not judging me I was like well can't nobody else judge me if George doesn't judge me and so then I started to actively look for different opportunities so science journalism wasn't exactly what I wanted to do because I wasn't trying to be objective (laughs) I wanted to be like black people in science are cool and you guys are gonna think it's cool now too like I wasn't on the well, this is, you know, what's happening. No, I'm telling you what you're going to like. Like that was a, <laughs> that was my mindset. And so like the whole journalism thing wasn't quite working for me. And so then I also took courses in the education department about environmental education and stuff like that. And I started applying for like different programs, mm. like the mass media fellowship. And through that fellowship is how I was able to be in the mentor mentee program with you. And so uh, that's kind of how I got into it myself. So when did you decide that herpetology would be your way into studying climate change? So climate change was really a byproduct of me wanting to work with my grad advisor. So I was already doing herpetology research for the entire time that I was an undergrad. So my undergraduate advisor, George, knew my graduate advisor, Michael, because they had both done research in the same place together. And so when Michael had just started at the University of Arizona, he reached out to George and he was like, hey, do you know of any undergraduate students who are looking to go to grad school? And George was like, I have just the one. (laughs) And so then me and Michael connected and then he was like, "Okay, so you seem really awesome, but here's the catch. I'm an aquatic entomologist and I have no understanding about lizards. So you need to figure out how you're going to marry lizards with aquatic insects So that way you could come and work with me. And so then we came up with this study about climate change, which I thought was really interesting because I had always been interested in how animals and humans interact with one another. And so climate change just seemed like a really great way to marry all of my interests. Mm. I got to work with my grad advisor and work with lizards and then also study climate change that way. That's awesome. Yeah, So I've always felt like a connection to the environment and wanting to be involved in some way. Back in high school, I was the vice president of the Student Sierra Coalition. We were going to go to Staples and like uh, demand that they use recycled paper. That's amazing. Once I got into science journalism, I knew I wanted to go into the environment and energy is what I was really interested in. And I basically follow stories that I'm fascinated and terrified by. (laughs) So I've done some reporting on solar geoengineering, which I just cannot get enough of that topic. It's so interesting. It's like basically a way to cool the earth by shooting chemicals into the sky. And it combines so much. It combines this aspect of 
scientific research. Like, what does that mean? What would those chemicals do? How do they break down in the atmosphere? But then it also brings in aspects of societal impact. So what does it mean for a country or even a scientist to decide to do this? Who is going to allow them to do it? And what are the unknowns? And the really interesting question about that is, for years, scientists never even talked about it because it was considered taboo. How can we tell people to stop putting CO2 in the air if we're going to give them this get out of jail free card? where, oh, we can just shoot chemicals in the sky and it's like going to be fine. Right. So it's fascinating to see how people navigate that field of science because it was kind of a debate. There were some t- scientists saying like, let's not study this at all. Let's not talk about this. It's a moral hazard. And other scientists were saying, we need to just know how this method would work. We don't want to get into the situation where right now we're doing pretty poorly in general, everybody when it comes to uh, climate change. So we should just know what's up with this method just in case we ever need to use it. That's what's fascinating to me about reporting on the environment. I mean, it can also be really depressing. Yeah. But I think that it's something that we need to study and we need to be talking about and that we need to know more about. Well, now I have like a bunch of questions that we're going to have to talk about in our next (laughs) session about this. Because I was just like, shooting chemicals into the sky, where do they go? (laughs) So as a science journalist, I know most people probably think that you're sitting at your computer typing away all day, but I know that you make videos. So can you talk about how your videos are used to spread messaging about the environment? Yeah. Um, Actually, one of my favorite videos ever is about the environment. And it's about the environmental cost of death. How does it impact the environment when you cremate a body or when you bury someone? I was just fascinated about that question. I wanted to do a video because actually it's really hard to distill that into a hard number. What the video was actually about is life cycle cost. When you have a burial, so much goes into it, right? It's not just putting embalming fluid in the ground. You're actually making a gravestone and it takes energy to carve into that headstone. It takes fuel to transport the gravestone to the site. So all of these things are what you have to take into consideration when you're looking at any single process. And so with the video, it really allowed me to tell a story. I also, because it's death and people get very like, it's kind of a bummer. (laughs) The outlet was really cool. And they let me tell this story through stop motion gingerbread cookies. (laughs) So we had a little gingerbread woman like tucked away underneath a blanket that my producer had actually sewed. And uh, we made a coffin out of graham crackers and we had fruit roll-up flames uh, engulf her. So it was, I think it was like a really creative way to tell the story that I wanted to tell, which was basically every aspect of our lives, how we eat, how we travel impacts the environment and even how we die and how, um, you know, we take care of our remains. Mm-hmm. I love that I was able to get that message out through like this adorable cookie video. And it really challenged me to to think of ways to give people this information in a way that would also entertain them and not like turn them off. So did doing the research for this project impact the way that you think that you would want to be treated after you die? Yeah. And I, I realized this too, what I'm asking of people, like your own death, it's so personal. 
if you were burying your loved ones, it that comes with so much like emotion and tradition. But if I were, you know, to plan ahead, I think I'd go with like natural shroud in a woods somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You mentioned something about like traditions and that's what got me really interested in like human wildlife conflict and how people interact with the environment and just respecting that people come from different cultures and traditions. Mm. That was the basis that got me really interested in doing more environmental work. A lot of my outreach in general is aimed at helping more BIPOC, Black, Indigenous people of color get outside and enjoy the outdoors because like there's the saying that Black people don't go outside or Black people don't camp, things of that nature that really isn't true and like is a stereotype that some Black people have kind of like bought into. I think one of the coolest things is like reading and and seeing like what some, you know, traditions were and like how Black people have been culturally connected to land and watching documentaries and stuff like that, like my own personal education. But it's something that I really hope to be able to look into for the future, just looking at how different people interact with the land. So how do you see having more diverse voices in science change the field? So in my opinion, having more diverse science means that we're going to be doing better science. Yeah. One of the first things that pops into my head within like the birding community and like ornithologists where they're realizing that female songbirds are actually like interesting whereas before you only had white men who were allowed to be scientists and stuff and so they were just like their own biases were like human females aren't interesting so female songbirds aren't going to be interesting so we only going to study the male songbirds but now that more diversity is coming into these fields more and more people are doing research on female songbirds and they're like whoa 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 that past thinking right there was incorrect. We have all this new information on female songbirds and they're just as interesting as the males. And so that's kind of like the most in your face explanation for how it changes like the actual science itself, but also it can change the culture within how we produce science and produce new scientists where different people from different backgrounds all bring something new to the table and a lot of the times when people are doing like graduate programs they'll tell you that they don't have the greatest experiences so having that representation means changing how we do science why we do science and who does science and changing it in a positive direction yeah I totally agree I hope that it is changing I mean as scientists, we're taught to question things. And it's wild to me that like we've been educating people the same way mm-hmm. for so long. Like you would think that we would question the process of training scientists and it's past due. This doesn't need to be like such a torturous experience for everybody. And it's really interesting because like one of the most beneficial classes that I took as a graduate student wasn't really even a science class. It was like about innovation. Part of what we did in that class is we really got to the meat of what 
organizations and like institutional cultures and how those things operate Mm. because every university it has its own culture and like people have a hard time with change especially when they don't know what that change is going to look like Mm. yeah and that really helped me, especially because I was one of those grad students doing a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, why am I having such a hard time doing this? And then, like, we'll have like meetings, and people will be like, yeah, we know so and so is the problem. I'll be like, well, why can't we fire them? And they'll be like, well, because of tenure. And I was like, well, maybe we should look at tenure. And then they were like, well, tenure protects professors. And I'm like, which professors? The black professors that we don't have? The <laughs> like the many like Hispanic, Latino, Asian professors that we don't have. Like we have one male Mexican professor and one female Mexican professor. Who are we protecting here? But, you know, people are just really resistant to change. Totally. So has our relationship as mentor-mentee shaped your work in climate or any way or like changed the way that you kind of like think about how you go forward? Yeah. I mean, I'd say I'm, I'm really inspired by the work that you're doing and your Twitter presence. I mean, I'm not very good on social media. Like I really hardly post. I see the reach that you have and just the impact that you have. Like every time you tweet, just the such genuine responses that you get too. I think you've really cultivated a following where it's like, these are really sincere people. And they're all rooting for you, too. And it's really inspiring to see that you can have that direct impact. I'm just kind of looking at you and and what you're doing and hopefully finding ways that we can get you that show. So (laughs) working on that. I'm trying to make my way out to L.A. One of these days I'm going to get a full time position and I'm going to be able to survive the rent in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure out if I could kick my little brother out the house. I'm like, yeah, you want to go live on campus. You want to go live in the dorm. So that way I could take his room. (laughs) We're ready for you in LA whenever you're ready. Um, March, April, that's my goal. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, I went to a thing last night. It was a, a group for aspiring screenwriters and people in TV and film. And it was a group for just people of color. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It was really inspiring and openly, you know, we were just ranting to each other about the challenges that you can face as a person of color, basically in every industry. And the person said, we need your stories. This industry needs our stories. And I think it's good to remind each other how much value we bring, especially when you're just starting out, you kind of wonder like, oh, I don't know enough or I don't have enough experience. But like, literally, if you look at the field, No one has our backgrounds. You know, there's just like not many of us around. We're both very unique. And being people of color like that only enhances what we have to bring. I was about to like dunk on some white dudes, but I'm like, let me not. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) How do you think about using social media to amplify your work? So I kind of already explained how I started off on Twitter. And, and and for the last five or so years, that's been my main platform. And I've also started to use Instagram and TikTok. But the TikTok is very, very new. <laughs> We're working on that. Um, but I created three years ago the game Hashtag Find That Lizard, where I post a lizard 
a picture of a lizard camouflage in its natural environment and people have to actually find it in the photo that I post. <laughs> and so I've been able to use that to teach people about lizards, to talk about different conservation issues. I've also been able to like relate it to different like social justice issues by posting and being consistent. You know, you can't just like post and leave. You actually have to stay there and engage people and, you know, reply to their comments and retweet and stuff like that. And I feel like I've really been able to get to know different people. There was somebody um, who commented, he was like, yeah, it was a great time when we used to be like finding like lizards, even you didn't know were in the photo. And I was like, yeah, I have nightmares about those couple of months when all of y'all were like, oh, is this a second lizard? And that person was like the one who spearheaded the campaign. And I was like, yo, (laughs) please chill. (laughs) But like you built these relationships. I've also been able to talk about more stuff than just lizards. Like I recently started to do like, weightlifting. And so I'll post about that. And then there are people who are interested in that stuff too. And so my whole thing has been that I'm always going to show people that I am a whole entire person and not just a scientist. I want for people to be able to like relate to me when younger people are seeing my posts and stuff. I want them to be like, oh, she's a scientist, but she's also a whole person. And she's kind of like me. And maybe if I want to go into science, because she's doing it, I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Keeping it real with people. And I think that that's why, like you said, that I've been able to like cultivate a genuine audience is because I I try my best to be genuine with my audience. Yeah, I think that takes a lot of bravery. It's great that you put yourself out there. But like, even I, I worry for you sometimes, you know, just because like, being a presence on social media, it can be a lot. You're basically like, sharing yourself for them, for like, you know, these younger women who are looking up to you. You know, it took me till I got my master's essentially to be able to say to somebody out loud that I want to host a natural history TV show because like, I was really scared about it. I was afraid that I was going to be judged. And I've also had to sit in rooms where people have been like, yeah, I know I'm an unqualified white guy, but, you know, it's still affirmative action that the black guy got the job over me. And I'm just like, are you serious? Mm -hmm. Like when somebody got up to do a keynote speech and they were just like, yeah, you know, we really want to diversify like our applicant pool and stuff like that. But we're not getting like the black and brown folks right now, but at least we got white women. Right. And I'm like, no, let me let me tell you why that's wrong. And (laughs) And having like mentees sit in with me on stuff like that and just having to be like, okay, no, we're, I'm not even going to let you taint their minds like that. Mm-hmm. Let's go set the record straight here. I don't want people to have to go through the same, you know, BS that I went through. And that's part of the problem. People of color have to take on all this extra work mm-hmm. because it's like, yeah, we don't want other people to have to like suffer in the ways that we suffer. But at the same time, it's just kind of like, well, If I don't do it, who will? And Mm -hmm. that's also one of the cool things about social media is being able to find community and see that there are a whole lot of other people out there who are trying to achieve like the same goal and who are one or two like black women, you know, at the conference. And they're just like, hey, I'm I'm saying the same things as you, girl. We we all working through this together. Mm -hmm. So that's been one of the nice things about social media is, is not having that feeling of isolation. Yeah. How has our relationship impacted your work? I feel like I think about my work a lot more critically. I think more about how to better craft stories. And I feel like I'm a bit more intentional because before I just post, post, post. And so like there were definitely some times when I was like a lot more intentional 
than like just throwing stuff out there. But now it's one of those things where it's like, okay, that was for fun. And now I actually want to do this as a career. And so just being able to like talk to you and like learn about your experiences has been able to help me to kind of orient my thinking. And I don't want to say like that it's already like fully oriented. I'm still figuring it out for myself, but like definitely it's helped me think a bit more critically about how to take this as an actual career path. Yeah. And I can totally see that. I can see the growth. Yeah. I remember when we first started talking, like you have so many ideas, like really great ideas. Even seeing you like crafting show pitch or video ideas, thinking about the structure and and how to put them out. I mean, it's cool to see you take all these ideas and like Mm -hmm. rein them in into things that can exist. What has our relationship meant to you? Oh, it's been so meaningful. I mean, I feel like this last year getting to know you and being able to help in any way that I can, it's so much more rewarding, honestly, than like doing my own work. (laughs) When you succeed, it's like pure happiness. If something good happens for me, I'm like, I can always criticize it. I think that's why people do mentorship. I understand now. It's like you can only really get so much satisfaction from your own work. But like the satisfaction that you get from seeing someone else grow, this knowledge you already had that you weren't doing anything with, you get to like share it with someone else and see them just go in places that you could have never even expected. I I understand now like how as getting further into my career, that's really where the reward is at. Getting to a certain place where I can create opportunities for other people and like help them however I can, that's so much more rewarding than just a goal that includes only me. Um, so thank you for being a mentee. Oh, I'm tearing <laughs> up over here. <laughs> oh. um, so what is our mentorship relationship meant to you? You know, it honestly wasn't until I got to grad school where I was really starting to see people who I could, like, look up to. I knew I wanted to work with animals for a long time. I thought I was going to be a vet because my parents were like, yeah, you want to work with animals. That's fine, you weirdo. (laughs) But at 18, you're leaving our house and not coming back. So you can't be a zookeeper because they don't make money. The only other thing that we know of is being a vet and they do make money. And then, like, I got to college and I realized I didn't really want to be a vet and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at that point. And I was lucky as an undergraduate student, I got to go to conferences every year, but I still wasn't seeing anybody who I could really look up to, anybody who I could be like, that person is doing the things that I want to be doing. And so it wasn't really until I got to like graduate school where I really did start to see people who I was like, yeah, they're doing some awesome stuff. And, you know, I already talked about being the oldest child. I'm scared to ask for help. And so, like, knowing that I could go to you without being scared, <laughs> feeling, like, stupid or whatever, that is invaluable to me. What's your vision for our future together? Um, so, like, I really hope that at one point or sometime soon that we actually get to, like, work on a project together. I hope that we continue to just build off of this foundation that we've established, you know, this last year or so. And I hope that, you know, one day I'm winning awards, you winning awards, we have an awards party together. (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) 
environmentalism slash natural resources slash et cetera, et cetera, is just, you know, the other side of the coin with environmental justice. And moving forward, if we do want to see changes, we can't keep separating the two. Issues that impact Black people and other people of color have to come to the forefront. We cannot keep sweeping them aside, saying, you know, we're talking about the environment, not talking about people. Well, what's the point of talking about the environment if we aren't going to make the world better for everybody who lives here? Beautiful. I'd encourage people to um, support local journalism. I mean, telling these stories takes money. I mean, I know a lot of people just get their news on the internet, but if you want in-depth reporting um, and people to actually be able to make a living and have a life while doing it, we really need people's support. Otherwise, it kind of falls on a really specific subset of people who can kind of afford to be a journalist. And I think that's a really narrow subset and we lose a lot of voices that way. So if you can, wherever you get your environmental news, support them. And just like you said, I really want to work together. I mean, I think that would be amazing. I see the vision for your show. Like, I I cannot wait to see you basically killing it. And I would love to be involved. And I just, you know, I just want to be there and watch you grow, really. I feel like there's so many things you could do. Me too. And, um, you know, any way that I can help, (laughs) like, I'm here. Well, thank you so much, Tian. I know this is kind of out of the blue, so I really appreciate you coming to have a chat with me. Yes. Thank you, Erin, for inviting me. I love doing this. This was so sweet. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Erin McGee and Tian Nguyen for sharing your time with us. This episode is one of six conversations we'll be sharing this month as part of our mentorship issue. You can read more about mentorship at grist.org fix, where we're exploring the power of mentorship in climate work and how mentorship must change to make the space more inclusive and accessible. That's at grist, G-R-I-S-T fix. Temperature Check is a podcast from FIX, Grist Solutions Lab, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. I'm Jess Stahl, FIX's editor for creative storytelling. FIX's Claire Thompson, Camille Williams, and Josh Kimmelman all contributed to this podcast with additional contributions from FIX managing editor Jamie Berger and designer Mia Torres. This podcast is produced by Audrey No, with associate producer Dominique French and editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, review, and tell all your friends to follow Temperature Check. You can also listen to all of our other conversations on mentorship right now in this podcast feed. See you there.